0: And welcome to McLean's pop culture podcast, Thrill, for the week of June 19th. On this week's show, hold on to your butts. The gates are open, literally. People are throwing their money at the dino sequel, Jurassic World. We'll talk about the role of nostalgia, the nature of summer blockbusters, and we'll take a dino quiz to see what we really know about dinosaurs. Then millions of peaches. The provocative art polymath, Peaches, is a DJ, singer, actress, and now an author with a new book out. She'll chat with us about her legacy and what she's up to these days. And Mastering Diddy Krabbits. Mordecai Richler's famous novel about a man who desperately wants to buy a plot of land has been revived, this time as a musical, with a brand new ending. David Spencer, who wrote the script and the lyrics to the show, joins us to talk about why they made both of those decisions. I'm Adrian.
1: I'm Emma. And I'm Julia.
0: And this is The Thrill. Jurassic World is the reboot of the Jurassic Park series of films about a world where humans have made dinosaurs alive again. And the franchise is certainly alive again. The movie which stars Chris Pratt and Dallas Bryce Howard took in more than $500 million worldwide on his opening weekend, the most in the history of time, which as it turns out includes the age of actual dinosaurs. But why not? It's got all the right ingredients, from newly-anointed superstar Chris Pratt to an iconic franchise behind it. So what's new this time around? Jurassic Park is now a Disneyland style theme park, and because society has managed to find itself bored of real life dinosaurs, the park feels pressure to genetically modify a new, scary dinosaur. Obviously, nothing goes wrong with this classic Frankenstein's monster situation. Here's a clip. It
2: was white. The tournament was white.
3: Think it'll scare the kids?
2: The kids? This will give the parents nightmares. Is that good? It's fantastic.
0: In studio, we got uh, John Semley, who wrote about Jurassic Park for McLeans. Hey, John. Hello. Um, So... Best place to start? What would you guys think?
3: I saw the movie with Julia yesterday Mm -hmm. in the VIP section, whenever you've been there before, with (laughs) big comfy seats. Um, And I really, really was very disappointed by it because I loved the franchise when I was a kid, and I thought that that Jurassic World was mainly disappointing because it was all out of sorts. What I love about a good uh, monster movie is that everything starts off really... Beautiful and bucolic and serene, and and you know you see especially in Jurassic Park the grazing scene where people see the dinosaurs for the first time, and it's usually the herbivores, and it's the brontosaurus or Brontosaur, I think. Bronchiosaur brontosaurus, brachiosaurus, brachiosaur. Grazing is a disease in your lungs. It's all you know blue and green, and and everything looks like it's going to be okay, and then the monster is introduced. And in Jurassic World, the problem for me is that. We start off with the monster. It's too much monster, not enough beautiful pastoral grazing scenes. And I think that that's like what the Jurassic Park formula is about. Like that's at the heart of the formula. So for me, this this movie was too off-brand. It was too much obsessed with the, I forget the name of the di- Indominus Rex. Yes. The manufactured Indominus. dinosaur.
1: Emma said there wasn't enough foreplay. Yeah, I compared
3: it to yeah. to sex in the sense that the grazing scene is like the Sets foreplay. <laughs> and then the the grand finale is when you right. meet the
0: monster. Interesting. The to time. see what you can lose. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs>
4: The thing, yeah, I agree with that in a way. I mean, the thing about the original Jurassic Park is like there really aren't monsters. I mean, they're just, it's like Jaws, right? I mean, Jaws doesn't have an agenda. It's just a shark doing what a shark does as the T-Rex was doing as a T-Rex does and the Velociraptors were doing as they do. Uh, And here, there were too many monsters. I mean, they're literally breeding a monstrous dinosaur whose job is to be scary and unpredictable. And every like basically every human character is evil. Like the, one of the only people who returned from the original was B.D. Wong from uh Law and Order. Law and Order, yeah. yeah.
3: Pedophile Whisperer. Yeah, so
4: he was like in the original one for like two seconds where he delivers like a little baby Velociraptor and now he's like this arch villain who like won't tell anyone like what's in the sausage of the Indominus Rex. <laughs> and who
0: learns nothing. Who allegedly learned nothing from 20 years ago. Yeah, well this is the thing like,
4: I mean you said it was a reboot and it's kind of a reboot, but also it's a direct sequel. Like it's in continuity with the other other ones, and this is kind of the thing that I wrote about with McLean's is it feels like a comment on the original movie where the original movie was like a comment on blockbusters and showmanship. And this is like a comment on remakes where it's like, well, everything went uh, disastrously wrong. I mean, uh, maybe if we do it this time, uh, it'll be better. Uh, And I guess it panned out for them at the box office. But yeah, I was also uh, really disappointed by it. Uh, Disappointed would presume that I had expectations (laughs) that weren't met with my disappointment. I want to
3: talk about Chris Pratt for a second because...
4: I just for like a second? They, many seconds. For many
3: seconds, because I feel like they chose him not only because he's... Well, he is really popular for a reason being that he is silly and sexy. He has, like, that Indiana mm-hmm. Jones type of appeal, good one-liners. He's a funny guy. Wears a vest and, great. Yeah, yeah, but it seems like they just sucked the life out of him in the movie. Like, he's he has no zero personality. Like, they chose him for this reason, and then they very counterintuitively wouldn't let him be himself.
4: Yeah, I mean, to me it felt like sort of an audition reel for the Indiana Jones movies that he's Mm -hmm. supposed to be in, down to the vest and even him kind of tuck rolling under doors at the last (laughs) second. Uh, But I agree. I mean, I think that Chris Pratt's hilarious on Parks and Rec, which he kind of had to leave because A, he wasn't funny anymore when he wasn't the big sort of pudgy fat guy, Uh, and B, because he got too famous. But I liked him in Guardians of the Galaxy and in this yeah, I mean, you want to talk about genetic hybrids, like they're essentially rolling Sam Neill's character and Jeff Goldblum's character from the yeah. original into one guy and the Robert Muldoon sort of raptor guy from the first one. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he was a little stiff and boring. I mean, he had he has an obvious movie star charisma that really comes through. But how can you not look like a movie star when you're riding like an Indian motorcycle flanked by four velociraptors?
0: Well, I think what's interesting about Chris Pratt here is that it's kind of like the expansion. It's a strange reversal of how movie stars are made generally, because usually you have your like, oh, you know, you're going to helm a major franchise. And it's usually this very stereotypical archetype. But he's different because he did the hard stuff first, arguably. It's it was it's hard to be a character like he was in Guardians of the Galaxy, where he is a tough guy, but also funny. And, and he, you know, there's this like Lovable buffoon and all this stuff. And now he's like his expansion of range, which for like a lot of actors is like the thing you try to do. For him, that's be like a soulless character, which is kind of an interesting thing, right?
4: Yeah. I mean, I feel like the hardest thing with movie stars, I mean, I think a lot about George Clooney and it's like how people saw something in George Clooney in the sort of 90s. if They had no idea what it was. So it's like, let's make this guy Batman. Let's put him in a vampire movie. Yeah. Let's just do whatever. He has an obvious quality. And it wasn't until later that that sort of Clooney movie star blue-eyed salt and pepper thing kind of came out. Uh, but with Chris Pratt, I mean, I agree that like Guardians of the Galaxy was like a perfect role because mm-hmm. here, you know, basically all they had to do was literally mold him into shape to play Star-Lord. But with this, it does feel like those sort of interesting edges are being Sand it off of it. But again, he is charming enough in it and funny enough and quite obviously handsome that I don't think he's going to have uh, a difficult time being a movie star.
1: When uh, he first came on the scene in the movie, I was really ready to not be into it because he's got a little bit of a drawl and he's like an ex-Marine who just goes by instinct. And I was like, I, I don't think I have time for this. But uh, he won me over, guys. And not just him, but that whole movie admittedly the first thing i thought was like when will they learn to just keep that damn part closed and i think in fact a character actually says that like yeah. when will you learn but i i i mean i know that you guys didn't really like it but i kind of i was surprised that i liked it i was ready not to like it and i did like it and i think the reason that i liked this movie is because i was sufficiently entertained and the part of me you know that the the purpose of summer blockbuster movies is to make you want to if you don't want to do it already to turn off that part of your brain and have that big bag of popcorn and you know absorb those big meaty tropes of this man who lives in a cabin and like fix motorcycles and it's just like i'll take care of it ma'am which he was and like the big monsters with the big monster fights and like won't somebody think of the children but i i at first, I was like, "Oh, I think I, I like it." And then I was like, "No, I like it. I like it. It's the it's a basic what? bitch of a movie. It's my <laughs> pumpkin spice latte, and I I like that."
3: Of, I mean, I'm gonna play the feminist card, but weren't you a little bit disappointed by how retrograde it was? And the like the '90s movies were way more progressive. Like you had Laura Dern, you know, crouching down. Putting her hand into a pile of tyrannosaurus dung. Triceratops. And, sorry, uh... trice- <laughs> I didn't even say. Yeah, she was Rex Triceratops. I'm gonna fail the dinosaur <laughs> quiz. But yeah, in the triceratops at least the dinosaur dung
4: quiz, <laughs> dung, which is a part of it.
1: And sh- and, in, and she was dressed like the crocodile hunter. Yeah, and
3: in yeah. Jurassic World, the heroine is like a fey Ray character. Yeah, that, she's wearing high heels the whole time, and when Chris Pratt comments on her, you know, stupid shoes, instead of taking them off, she just unbuttons her shirt. Just... When... She leaves the shoes
4: on the whole time, even when she's doing, again, the Goldblum yeah. thing with the flare and yeah, 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 the T-Rex, yeah. she's wearing high heels. They do and... It's a close shot of it. But yeah.
0: i keep
1: running in those heels. First
0: of all, I don't know when it was that we started measuring feminism by amount of dung in hand, but, but I also Jurassic think... Jurassic Park. Sure, only. I guess it was specifically the 90s, but... I would but... say...
3: I would, just to interrupt you for a second, <laughs> I would say that in a film about... Dinosaurs, and right. in which the main characters know a lot about dinosaurs. The You would expect that I, the heroine of this movie, I don't even know what her credentials were.
1: Was she a scientist? She seemed to be some sort of project
3: she manager.
0: She ran the park. She, had she was the park runner.
1: Runner. yeah. You know what? I, if, if, interestingly enough, it didn't so much, the feminism of that movie did not really occur to me,
0: mm-hmm.
1: except for, not, like, not in terms of what she was wearing or the fact that she was running in high heels or any of that. Only in the, there's a, a moment, this isn't really giving anything away, but when she speaks to her sister on the phone, the sister whose children she's supposed to be taking care of. So the, these two nephews come to the park today to see their cool aunt do her thing and she kind of abandons them. She talks to her sister on the phone and she has this moment where she's just like, or the sister says to her something along the lines, or she says to her, sister rather well you know if I have children and she's like not if when and she's like oh maybe like the career woman has to put her children on the line that was the only line in the whole movie that made me roll my eyes just like right. no you will do it all can I say about
4: this whole relationship too like I've never seen a movie that puts more focus on the aunt nephew relationship <laughs> yeah. like it's like yeah. the <laughs> most important relationship it's actually revolutionary like they're like you don't know your so. how old your nephews yeah. are it's like yeah, I would have no idea like you know <laughs> but they make it seem like it's like the key that in like the man dinosaur relationship yeah. it's like the most important Thing that exists in the world is the aunt nephew dynamic.
1: Also, just a word on Chris Pratt. I am not one for Hollywood crushes at all, but I had one on him before. I had a, a, was crushing on him before I saw this movie, and then I didn't want to. But it, it worked. It worked on me. And the only other time that this is I've had the the Hollywood crush that I've had to this level was Clive Owen, and I think that they have the same thing in common that movie star quality you were discussing, where it's like women like them and men want to be them, and that you know it's it's a harder note to strike. Than you think.
0: I I want to return to Emma's point about the the like the, the problematic quality of some of the movie I never because that word, sure, okay. but Emma's no, least, least favorite word. Is there is are there is I mean there is the certainly uh, Dallas Bryce Howard's character has some issues with it in in how like profoundly just weak and followy she is. But also there is there is one scene uh that really bothered me that I just couldn't explain, which is there is a character who is sort of like a minor character. You'll know it when you see it, uh who gets killed. I mean, many people get killed, but her her killing is gratuitous. Doesn't make it like just illogically gratuitous. I didn't know how that how that followed It's just
4: part of the machine. Are you talking about machine. the, the secretary, like her assistant is, or whatever? I don't, I, completely I don't know if we can say that. Disagree. We? No. I
3: think that people are up in arms about the fact that she was killed in such a dramatic and grotesque way because she's a woman and we never see women die like that. And I think I Honestly, believe in equal opportunity <sighs> mauling. I think that it's totally <laughs> fine and if she was a guy, like it yeah. would have been into that. an awesome fine. death. Yes.
0: Like,
4: I mean, yeah, but, that to me was the equivalent of the lawyer getting eaten on the toilet. Everything goes yeah. back to poo and toilets today. So this today. time the
3: lawyer was a hot chick, and that's fine. Yeah,
4: the most annoying, obnoxious characters always get it worst. It, yeah. Like Vincent D'Onofrio. Which yeah. she wasn't
0: even annoying. She, would just, she yeah, just she was there. Kind of she she was just, annoying. just annoying. was there. And she
3: was a bad babysitter. Can she I say, too, on the feminist like- tip,
4: all the dinosaurs are bred female, so mm-hmm. uh, we have many strong <laughs> female heroes in this film, such as T-Rex, Raptors, uh, Velociraptor.
1: Blue, the, blue,
4: the Raptor. Uh, but,
1: but, it, gets a, it gets a pass
0: for me. Right, That's what I have to say
1: about Jurassic But Games.
0: it cuts to my point about uh, the point I want to make about blockbusters, which is that, to a certain point, and, and we sort of talked about it here, there is a, we do have to turn our brains off at a certain point. That is the value of the blockbuster in many ways. When I think of summer blockbusters, I have the same relationship uh, when I'm looking at them and saying, like, well, whether I like them or not. The same way I measure sort of children's movies, which is, you know, when you're making a children's movie, you're kind of measuring on how great is it going to be for the kid? But also, like, it's got to be in just enough in there for adults to not find this to be direct, right? And Summer Blockbuster, to me, had the same quality where it's like, oh, it's mostly for people who want to turn switch their brains off, and that's cool, and let's just have a bunch of explosions and stuff. But also uh, but also, uh, people who are like, oh, maybe I'll, like, think about this movie even a little bit and have it not be just illogical. Like, you don't want it to have it be terrible. And that's the kind of – isn't that, that to me is the tricky balance between the summer blockbuster and not. What, what do you guys think about the rules I, of the summer blockbuster? I think
4: it's totally arbitrary. Like, I don't understand – like, people always talk about summer blockbusters, but it's, like, because there's the sun is out longer, like, all movies have to be different for four months. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I think – Air conditioning. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing about turn your brain off, I mean, I always find that to be a little fallacious because my sense is that – Most of the people who are bringing this movie to, like, a half-billion-dollar gross, like, they're not, like, tottering out of astrophysics labs and, like, need to unwind. It's just, like, audiences who, like, generally go to this stuff exclusively. And I like big, dumb movies, and I like them a bit better when the messaging, however incidental, is smart, which this wasn't. Uh, I mean— I don't know. I liked the Star Trek Into Darkness movie where it was all about like drone warfare at Mm -hmm. a weird level and stuff like that. And I think the movies can do that and like while still being entertaining. Uh, But this, I don't know, didn't have anything like that. Maybe I just can't turn my stupid brain off.
1: Dumb yourself down. John.
4: Do
0: blockbusters need to have a message though? It seemed like this one sure did. This one was it was so obsequious. Yeah,
4: entertainment. No, the message was so insincere. Like even the director was like this is a movie about how they want us to make everything in Hollywood bigger, louder, right. and dumber and more mean. As it's like well, that
0: drinks from a Coca-Cola bottle. Yeah, and it's like uh, that is
4: exactly what this movie is. Plus it's got like Jimmy Buffett Margaritaville branding and like Starbucks logos all over it. So like you can't really have your you know, Jimmy Buffett, Margarita, and Sip It Too, you know? Like, you can't say that this is a movie about how Hollywood is, like, big and bad and obnoxious while making a big, bad, obnoxious movie. But it's also think.
0: like, oh, animals are people as well. Like, it was uh, if you if you thought this was terrible, you should check out SeaWorld. Like, that's I'm surprised someone at the end didn't just go like, hey, here's some things you should know about SeaWorld.
4: But the good thing about Jurassic Park within the fiction of the film is it's probably put SeaWorld right out of business. No one would care about Shamu and his pals. <laughs> Anymore,
0: I yeah, wouldn't, you I wouldn't gotta
2: think. Yeah, you're to get Indominus
5: Shamu.
0: <laughs> so Jurassic Park did a lot of things right, mostly in regards to money. But what it didn't do great uh, was... Knowledge of dinosaurs, the original film, uh, and so Amanda Shendruk here at McLean's put together a little dinosaur quiz uh, to see what you actually know about dinosaurs because that film didn't quite do it. Uh, so I'm gonna see, so I'm gonna ask you guys, uh, starting with let's say Emma, uh, right. some questions here. Obviously
1: you the most knowledgeable about dinosaurs here, take it away, Emma.
0: So Emma, from what time period were the majority of the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park? Was it Cretaceous, Triassic, or Jurassic?
3: Well, I feel like I should say Jurassic because it's called Jurassic Park, but it's a trick question.
0: Oh, you saw right through it. So
3: I'm going to say one of the other ones, <laughs> the names of which I've forgotten Forgot immediately. Now, but I'm going to go with the first one. Which I think was Jurassic. No, Cretaceous. You know? no, okay. That's Cretaceous. Right. So that's gonna end up being like some shellfish thing.
0: <laughs> Cretaceous actually is correct.
5: Oh, you <laughs> did it! Uh,
0: a more accurate mon- uh, moniker for the franchise would be Cretaceous Park. The majority of the dinosaurs on the island did not exist in the Jurassic period at all. Uh, favorites like the Tyrannosaurus Rex and the Velociraptor didn't show up until the Late Cretaceous period. So nailed it, Emma. Congrats. Nice. Ooh, thank you. Cool star. Uh, all right, John Samley. Subscriber, you said to dinosaur, dinosaur magazine. magazine.
4: If you guys remember that, it used to come with little pieces of a T. Rex skeleton every issue. Then you could uh, oh my, build the T. A not a life-size good. one, obviously. A scale model. <laughs> life-size,
0: obviously. That is value-added. uh John, in the franchise, the Velociraptor is as tall as a grown human. In reality, they were closer in size to what? Is it an ostrich, a sparrow, a turkey, or an emu?
4: Well, ostrich and emu, I feel, uh, I would say- Negligible height difference. I would say, uh, an emu.
0: An emu is incorrect. Is it an ostrich? Oh, Uh, dinosaur magazine. We need (laughs) our radio sounds like I didn't subscribe to Ostrich magazine. (laughs) What's the correct one? The correct answer (laughs) is (laughs) turkey. (laughs) What? Really? Unfortunately for science, a a turkey with teeth doesn't sell blockbusters. Or maybe it would. I actually don't know. I would watch a turkey teeth. Not me. No? Okay. But throw Chris Pratt in it. It's all good. Mm -hmm. Uh, Julia, you get an easy one. Uh, that is just true or false. Uh, so, Julia, true or false? Did they get it right or wrong? The dinosaur eggs carefully incubated by InGen scientists were similar in color to modern-day chicken eggs. True or false? Right or wrong?
1: I'm gonna say I'm gonna say false because how do they know what color a dinosaur's egg is?
0: Great point about dinosaur eggs, Julia. When the film was made, scientists were unsure whether dinosaur eggs had any color at all. However, a discovery from literally just last month oh, suggests that I at least some chance. dinosaurs laid colorful blue-green eggs. Ooh. So, like a robin. Yeah, like, yeah. So well. take that. So we should not be calling it robin's eggs anymore. We should call it dino-egg blue. Dino-egg blue. Uh, so we all. what we learned from this experience, I think, is that Dinosaur Magazine was perhaps not a sound investment.
4: Yeah. Or, or that... <laughs> You've been definitive. Had. Raptors are too tiny. <laughs> <laughs> turkey. Oh. Turkey-sized.
1: Well, I uh, learned something. Yeah. Everybody's a, a school day here at this room.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us, John.
4: Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me.
1: Peaches, the raunchy Toronto-born singer and DJ, jumped on the scene at the turn of the millennium with hair everywhere. Shaggy curls on her head, bristles coming out of her armpits, and pubes peeking out of her hot, pink hot pants, urging us all to bleep the pain away. Uh, She's known for her electro-clash classic albums, such as her debut, The Teaches of Peaches, producing her one-woman show singing the entire of Jesus Christ Superstar, known obviously as Peaches Christ Superstar, and her one-woman electro-rock opera, Peaches Does Herself, which was filmed and premiered at TIFF a few years ago. It's hard to overestimate the impact she's had on a particular crop of modern-day pop divas. Kesha, Lady Gaga, Pink are often doing Diet Coke versions of Peaches when they're attempting to portray their edgy persona. A few years ago, photographer Holger Talinsky asked if he could do a photo documentation of Peaches. Her shows are visually stunning, lots of props and costumes, and it's since turned into a photo book called What Else is in the Teaches of Peaches, which landed earlier this month with essays by Yoko Ono, Michael Stipe, and Ellen Page, who all consider themselves great fans. We've got her on the phone today. Thanks for joining us, Peaches. Yeah. Um, Happy to be here. (laughs) So tell us about what was the best part of making this book uh
5: the best part about making the book i mean i love the, the process of working i like you know um so i just found it fascinating because i was working with um holger Talinsky, who had just come out of um photography school, uh, school and he was like a skateboard kid and um he had a vision of what he wanted the book and the, um, the work to look like. And I had a vision, you know, of um, how I saw myself or how I thought my audience would want to see me. So the best part was, like, learning about, you know, what he saw technically and what I just, uh, what would grab me right away and, and how we could work together and, and uh, make this collaboration.
1: Yeah, and there's always so much going on with you visually. I mean, how did you pick the, what photos to, to include?
5: There are so many photos. There's pro- I probably like I'm probably under like there's probably like eight thousand photos or more to choose from. So um, and it's not, and we had to go back and actually look for like a special print for people who pre-ordered that wasn't in the book. And then we saw all these other pictures. And we were like, why don't we use that? Why don't we use that? You know, this could go on forever. Yeah. So um, the point was to have like a sort of like um the dichotomy between the, like, personal and the performance. Right. So, yeah. Right,
1: okay. Uh, so I think a year ago it was maybe you you performed Yoko Ono's uh, cut piece, which is a performance yes. where the artists sit completely still and the audience members come up and cut pieces of clothing off of you. Um, and in Yoko's review, she, like, was basically over the moon about how you performed it. Yes. Question, what, yes. what
5: does Yoko Ono smell like? What does she? Oh, oh! What does she smell like? Yeah, <laughs> she, all roses. Yeah, man, all roses. Mm-hmm.
3: What do you find fascinating about pop culture right now? Like, are there any bands or TV shows that you watch that you really like or dislike?
5: Right, Broad City, Amy Schumer, hands down, best things going on right now.
3: What about Orange Is the New Black?
5: Yeah, Orange Is the New Black is great, but I uh, prefer a little, a little more. Um, Comedy to my bite.
0: What is it that those TV shows are doing that 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 to speak to you?
5: I, they remind me of like, you know, I love rap music, and I love when it, I love the word pl- play in rap music and how cutting it is. But it always was like really misogynist, and so I hated it and loved it at the same time. Mm-hmm. But now with people like Broad City and Amy Schumer, it's like they're they're giving it like like a like a misogynist rapper, but from my point of view. So I'm really excited about it. (laughs) (laughs) So
1: I wanted to ask you about uh, when you did your one-woman show of Jesus Christ Superstar, named obviously Peaches Christ Superstar. Um, I actually wanted to ask you if you could not have gotten the rights to that classic musical, what would have been your second one-woman Peaches, peachified musical choice?
5: Oh, I couldn't get the rights for the longest time. And, even the theater asked me if I could pick another one, but it was just it's that particular um uh that particular musical because it's a um a rock opera there's no speaking in it, and also there's so many great uh parts to sing like uh the white man metal voice or the soul voice or the very vulnerable voice or a whole chorus and um I, I just think it's such a passionate story. That's that that was that was the only one. I mean, I could actually probably sing a million musicals, but that that's the one. That's the one. That's the one that tells a story without dialogue. That's why.
3: Hmm. I remember seeing you on the L Word once. Uh huh. Um, do you consider yourself kind of a
5: queer icon? Hell yeah! <laughs> I just met up with us. It's funny because I um I was hanging out at. Uh, LA Gay Pride this weekend. They had like the dyke picnic and then I DJ'd at an after party which was like um to raise money for LGBTQ everything else you wanna add to it. And um and I re- and there was a lot of the L word people there that I hadn't seen in so long, so it was a nice reunion.
3: Oh my god, cool. Which ones? Was <laughs> Shane
1: there?
5: Shane was there. No oh, Emma's favorite. Yeah.
1: yeah. <laughs> So, I, I read that you're you're making a video for every song on your next album. Is that true?
5: Yeah, I did it on my last album, too.
1: Right. Pre-Beyonce. Pre-Beyonce. Take that. Take that, Beyonce. So, uh, what's going on there? Like, what's... Can you give us any hints? What do you mean? With this what? next what project.
5: Oh, um, well, they're amazing. I mean, you know, Kim Gordon features on one of the new songs, and so we get a... Um, sort of wrestling video where she's kind of my coach, a la um, Rocky. Yes. So so wow. that, that's pretty, yeah, that's pretty awesome. I did a collaboration with uh, Margaret Cho, where a friend of mine found these n- amazing uh, naked knitted knitted costumes, like of all naked men, women, old, young, um, different, you know, uh, races, different sizes, different what blah, 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 blah. So Margaret Cho and I... Um, I wear these suits and i around L.A. doing things.
1: <laughs> wow. Okay, something to look forward to.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, I always feel like whenever one of these, you know, sort of career retrospective books come out, these one of these you know, look-backs at a legacy or career, it can feel kind of like... Um, like uh, this career is over, and now you know we're gonna we're gonna look back and see what it was all about. But that's not like what the sense I get from you. The sense is that you're still you're still doing so many so many things. Was that something that you thought about when you're putting this picture book together? How weird it is to make a career retrospective book?
5: No, it's not really a career retrospective. It's the last six years. I wouldn't say it includes mm-hmm. anything before because it was one photographer and. Those are the pictures he took. I just happened to be doing like a million um, different kinds of projects at the time. So there's a lot of diversity. So it may seem like someone's lifetime of work. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, I did make Peaches Does Herself, which was um, a movie that basically was a sort of mythical autobiography of myself, which could also read as a a career, um, like the end of a career sort of uh, retrospective. So maybe my maybe my new art is just to make retrospectives of my art. <laughs> I'll just continue making retrospectives of the retrospectives.
0: Um, I also read, uh, you gave this interview uh, to The Guardian back in 2006, and you talked about how you really wanted to infiltrate pop culture. And I was interested by that because... Well, when you think of pop culture, you have, you sort of think of this kind of uh, almost a monoculture—the idea that you have to be a certain way to be in pop culture—and that's so mm-hmm. clearly not true of you. You know the, that you are so—you know there's certain uniqueness about you. Uh, so, I mean, how do you reconcile those two things—the keeping your identity and also this desire to to infiltrate pop culture, as you say?
5: Well, the point of me wanting to infiltrate pop culture was to expand it and real mm-hmm. and let people. Realize that pop culture does not have to be so homogenic or or so you know what it i mean pop culture in that way only exists as as maybe um sort of a a way of of selling mm-hmm. so i I love when I infiltrate pop culture because it seems like then it's expanding you know like me being my song being on South Park in a very um in a part that's definitely expanding pop culture or um, whenever my music has been used in, in different shows or magazines or things like that, which is which is great.
0: The Apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz is undoubtedly one of Canadian author Mordecai Richler's finest books. It's a coming-of-age novel set in 1950s Montreal and it inspired one of Canadian cinema's classic films, What's next? Well, a musical, apparently. It's been four decades in the making, including a failed attempt in Philadelphia in the mid-80s, but it's finally up and running in Montreal's Siegel Center. But the musical doesn't quite follow the plot of the famous book, and not just because there are musical numbers in between. The book's ending is a very bittersweet one, full of moral grays, and that doesn't quite work for musical audiences. David Spencer found out the hard way. He wrote the show's script and lyrics, and recently had to rewrite the ending a second time with the hopes of making it work as a musical. He joins us now. Well, thanks for joining us, David. My pleasure. Um so, let's start by talking about the legacy of the book itself. Why what's the importance of this uh, in Canadian culture?
2: Well, you know, um that's something that I kind of got after the fact when I was approached to do it, and I just sort of went, you know, went for it because it was a good story. Mm-hmm. Um it seems that uh, you know, as an American what I can divine is that um Mordecai was writing about um a town, a city, a subculture that was very specific uh, to the development of Canada's national identity or one of their national identities. And um, I think that that's part of why they've been so possessive about the story. Um, Also, uh, over the years, um, as a theater person who developed friendships gradually with some theater people in Canada, um, and talking uh, with them about uh, what they have, what they observe, and having seen Mordecai on you know various talking head shows on television, and, and having known him briefly, um, you know there was a time when I don't think it's as as prevalent now, but there was a time when Canada was really struggling with what their national identity was, mm-hmm. and anybody who could put a you know a defining stamp on it uh, in a really iconic way. Uh, I think, became a cultural hero.
3: And why do you think the story makes for a good musical?
2: For the same reason, actually, that most musicals in the, in the canon, in the, in, the, in the canon of things that are done all the time, are good musicals, because it's got a larger-than-life hero on a quest. And in this case, it's also a rite of passage story. And you have characters who are wonderfully eccentric. And even though it's set in a kind of verite, uh, urban uh, backdrop, they're really extreme characters, and the things they say are extreme and that kind of bigness is is just fodder for musicalization.
0: I want to talk about the ending because that's that's become up uh, as of late. Uh, so can you tell us a bit about uh, sort of how you got here to this ending the what's what's happened is that you know you've changed the ending not just once but twice for this particular show, right?
2: Right. When I did my first draft of it, I actually did hold to Mordecai's ending. I had to try and figure out a way to make it play, because in a musical when you have to write a rite of passage story or any kind of story, you know it's okay to have a sad ending, but you've got to restore balance to the universe. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, the audience doesn't feel anything cathartic, and, and uh, you can really make them hostile. I did write uh, several drafts that really held fairly strictly. Mordecai's ending, and I found a way to make it play. But uh, then in subsequent readings, I you know, I, I started to play with the ending, and the difference was having a show that people left and they said, boy, that's really good, and then have a show where people leapt to their feet and cheered, and they go, okay, what is this telling me? Um, and basically what it tells me is it's kind of what you know, but when there's something you love, you try and, you know, you hold on to it as long as you can until it's no longer practical. And what it told me was that the thing about Dirty, when musicalized, uh, when made into a musical theater character, is that the audience invests in him differently. Mm. Um, Because that kind of storytelling, it compresses things, it elevates things, it it, it heightens the sense of of atmosphere. And and it heightens the investment, it just does. And when you're on a ride with somebody, and the, the other thing is that with this musical, you're not... Looking at Doody the way you look at somebody like Sammy Glick or Sidney Falco and going, What a despicable thing he's doing. Mm. If you do it right, what the audience is going, Oh God, please don't do that. You know? Because they're invested in having him make the right choice. So, um, but the second ending, I mean, this, this new ending that we came up with in rehearsal, which was really Austin's um, uh, notion. Um, you know, it's it, it sort of do the same thing, have Virgil be an agent of forgiveness, but later rather than sooner. It actually allows us to do both things, you know, take duty right to the brink and then give him a chance to choose again. So that's... And, and, and it just seems to be the catharsis that a musical theater audience demands. And heaven knows the audience response that we're getting seems to bear it out. We've had... Um, you know, now that we're open, I guess I can safely say this: uh, every single audience, they're leaping to their feet uh, at the button at the end of the opening. Excuse no- me, at the end of the closing number, uh, and half the time they're doing it before the house lights come up for the curtain call. Mm. I've never seen anything like that before. You know, uh, uh, it's extraordinary.
1: So um you talked about reworking the ending, which kind of gives study a sense of redemption at the end but it, it is a different ending than um, Richler intended and i'm I'm curious as to uh, that uh, that you you obviously wrote in this ending um, after the author died
2: well, the Philadelphia version um as I said, it was not my script um, right. and um, sorry I'm referring to, to this one, one. I actually I actually you know it, it played it was okay but it just didn't. It just didn't give uh, the musical a sense of catharsis. Right. Um, I've also, you know, spoken to people who are great fans of both the novel and the film, um, and I've read some criticism about it that that also feels the ending is something of a cruel throwaway, and that's certainly how I experienced the book when I read it. So it's it really is in a tradition of uh, uh, understanding that a musical is not a novel, is not a film. They're all different forms of storytelling, and they all have different needs.
1: I just wanted to ask you, how do you feel about the fact that you're never really going to get the original author's blessing with this ending? How does it sit with you?
2: Um, I don't necessarily think that's true because I knew Mordecai during when we did the first version. And um, we had a conversation, uh post-mortem conversation, uh, the four of us, Austin, Alan, me, and Mordecai. And we were in a diner, and he was seeming very fatigued at what we'd been through. And he admitted, uh, finally, he said that the reason that he held on to the ending so tenaciously is that he feared that if that ending came through in a musical with his name on it, that people in the literary community would think less of him. And I was kind of stunned to hear that, you know, and, and and I was much younger and much shyer about saying certain things, but, you know, all these years later, what I would have you know, the, the uh, there's a French expression, I forget what it is, but I think it means uh, words on the stairway, you know, the things you wish you could have thought as you were making your exit. And uh, what I would have said to him uh, was, you know, Mordecai, I, I understand that's a very real concern in terms of your emotional well-being, mm. but it's the lousiest reason to make a decision for what you are or aren't going to do in a musical uh, or in any, in any work of art, you know, uh, uh, you know, because basically also I happen to think that, uh, you know, if you make a creative decision that gives you something that achieves what it needs to achieve, most of your colleagues uh, who aren't uh, besotted with schottenfreude are going to say good for you.
1: So you feel he'd be fine with it?
2: You know, at this point, um, you know, I can't say how he would behave now, you know, if he were still around. But having seen him make that admission and then let go and stop insisting that any adaptation has to stick to that ending, which did happen in his lifetime, I think he finally resigned himself to the fact that it's another form. And I, I, I do happen to think that what he said was, you know, okay, they have to do what they have to do. And I think at that point, he knew we were going to uh, start taking liberties with it. So um, I can't, you know, it would be presumptuous of me to say absolutely what he would say if he were still alive. But I also know the process of letting go happened within his lifetime. Mm -hmm.
3: Okay. Thank you so much.
0: Yeah, thanks thanks for coming on, David. Thank you. You bet. Thank you. Well, that's it for this week. Leave us a rating or a comment on iTunes, or drop us a comment on the site. If you like this make sure to check out our politics podcast on the hill you can also hear some of our columnists like our very own emma title read their work at McLean's voices both are on itunes and stitcher our theme song is by young clancy you can follow emma on twitter at emma rose Teitel. you can follow julia at julia del j and me at adrian thanks for listening